Hello, my name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 21 The Rider on the White Horse Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written the title King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast, and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations any more until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads 
or their hands. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. For them the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years came to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand on the, along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire came from heaven down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulphur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will, they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, the first half of Revelation 19 is an expression of praise and thanksgiving, the cause of which, as Ian Paul notes, moves quickly from the defeat and destruction of Babylon, as detailed in chapter 18, uh, to the celebration of God's reign and victory that have now come. Uh, the principle of uh, Lex Talonis, the idea that in popular terms is known as an eye for an eye, was developed in the ancient culture of Babylon itself. It was common in the ancient world and also appears in scripture, for example in 1 Corinthians 3 and 17. If anyone brings to ruin God's temple, God will bring that person to ruin. Uh, therefore God is, is praised uh, in, in that first part of chapter 19 because in the destruction of Babylon his true and just judgments have been enacted and Babylon has been repaid in kind for her evil. And the tone shifts dramatically in verse 11 from praise to war. Uh, but as the phrase, then I saw, indicates, John is now witnessing a new vision altogether, uh, the focus of which narrows down on the final judgment. As Reddish comments, the fall of Babylon is a part of God's victory over evil, but it's only a part. The dragon and the two beasts and the kings of the earth who are aligned with them uh, still exert their influence and control over the world. 
And so the remainder of chapter 19 and uh, chapter 20 focuses on how they meet their final destiny. The concept of uh, a final battle between the forces of good and evil is encapsulated in that phrase, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, it's a biblical idea that has seeped into the cultural consciousness of Western societies, especially the ones that have had a, a long history of engagement with Christianity. And uh, to be fair, uh, that may be a result of the impact more of uh, Hollywood than uh, of preaching in churches. Uh, for the concept has proven to be fertile soil for scriptwriters and film directors uh, making movies about the end of the world. Although the word Armageddon conjures up the end of the world uh, scenarios in our uh, imaginations, in Hebrew the phrase is actually Har-Mageddon. It actually means the Mount of Megiddo. Uh, as Beale notes, the use of this location is symbolic rather than literal uh, and the name may have been used in Revelation because Israel's uh, battles on the plain of Megiddo became a kind of prophetic or typological symbol of the last battle. Uh, although Armageddon is not mentioned in the final verses of Revelation 19, there's no doubt that this is a fuller description of the summary statement that's given in Revelation 16 and verse 16. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. When I think of the Battle of Armageddon, I tend to imagine something like the ride of the Rohirrim uh, in the Battle of uh, Pelennor Fields before the city of Minas Tirith in Tolkien's epic um, uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, the final uh, section, The Return of the King. When you hear the phrase the Battle of Armageddon, it kind of has that vibe to it, uh, the clash of armies and, and so on. And yet the truth is that my fertile imagination and that of Hollywood scriptwriters could not be more wrong. For when you actually read the account of the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, you discover that the battle never actually takes place. The scene uh, describes all the armies of the kings of the world gathered together, ready to fight against Jesus. He's the one sitting on the white horse. But the battle never actually happens. Not a single shot is fired. No sword is ever drawn. The forces of evil, including the dragon and his two beasts, are all defeated before they even get started. And the last 11 verses of chapter 19 and all of chapter 20 describe the totality of that defeat. Not only are the kings and their armies defeated, but also the two beasts of Revelation 13 are thrown into the lake of uh, burning sulphur. And then in chapter 20, verse 10, the devil, the great dragon, is thrown in with them. Uh, not only is their defeat total, um, it was also inevitable. In 19 verses 1 to 10 is an invitation to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. But then in the latter part, in chapter 19 verse 17 and 18, is an invitation to come to a different feast. 
then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, great and small. The contrast between the two banquets is deliberate. As Johnson writes, John is telling us here that everyone's destiny is a supper. Both of these suppers are prepared uh, by God. But this invitation to the vultures, which takes place before uh, the battle itself, um, is it serves to highlight the certainty of the defeat of the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. Because the command is given to eat the flesh of Christ's adversaries even before they gather together for battle. Because the outcome was guaranteed by Jesus. As one writer puts it, the real final battle was not Armageddon, but the cross. The battle of Armageddon doesn't need to be fought because the final battle of the cross has already been fought and won. In 20 verse 14 we're told that in addition to uh, the dragon and his two beasts, death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. And so we've got to ask, well, when was death defeated? Here we're reading in chapter 19 about the defeat of the kings and their armies, and in chapter 20 the defeat of the beasts and the dragon and so on. <coughs> but when was death defeated? The resounding answer of the New Testament is that death was defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is a, it expounds the consequences for death in the death of uh, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, as, as John Owen, the Puritan writer and preacher, uh, might have put it, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the death of death itself. And we shouldn't forget that at the beginning of John's vision, Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the keys of death and the grave. So long before we get to chapter 19 in the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus is pictured as the one who, who holds the keys of death and the grave and he holds them because he has conquered them. Where did he conquer them? He conquered them at the cross and in his resurrection. So the dragon, the beasts, all those who have worshipped them and death and the grave themselves, as Peterson puts it, all the variations of evil that come to us and that we can experience are disposed of by Jesus. Uh, and that is done without a shot being fired. Armageddon is never fought simply because Jesus, it is enough that Jesus turns up to the battle because uh, he has already won the war at the cross and his turning up at that battle is just a reminder to the forces of evil that he has already won, that they are defeated. Jesus automatically wins that battle because of who he is. Jesus wins because he is the faithful and true. 
once again we find an echo of this in the opening verses of, of this letter in chapter 1 verse 5 where Jesus is described as the faithful witness. He was faithful to the Father's will from the beginning to the end. And to paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, he was faithful and true to the Father's will even to the point of death on a cross. However, the idea here uh, in this passage is more likely, as Beale notes, that Christ will be faithful and true to fulfil his promise to judge the wicked and to vindicate his name and his followers. And that's confirmed by the fact that he's then further described as the one who judges fairly and who wages a righteous war. Jesus wins because his eyes are a flame of fire. I wonder if you've ever said to someone, look me in the eye and say that. It's said that the eyes are the windows of the soul. The truths that we deny, that we hide, that we corrupt with our words are often laid bare by our eyes. If someone's lying to you, quite often they, they look away before they speak or as they're speaking. Our eyes give away the truth of who we really are. Here, however, the metaphor of eyes of fire pictures Christ's role as divine judge. Yes, he, his eyes of flaming fire uh, look right through all our pretensions. Um, the metaphor of the eyes of fire uh, yet certainly pictures Christ in his role as divine judge, but also that he, his, his eyes are piercing. You know, fire in scripture is, is often used to describe refining. Christ looks through all our pretensions. He looks right through us, looks right into us. He sees who we are. And because of that, he is able to judge us justly. Uh, the phrase is also used in Revelation 1 and 14, where Jesus stands in the midst of his churches to judge their true spiritual condition. It's also used in 2.19, where Jesus reveals that he knows and therefore judges the true spiritual condition of the ungodly who claim to be part of the Christian community in Thyatira. Jesus, his eyes are a flaming fire. He, he looks into our very souls. He knows the true condition of our souls and he judges us accordingly. Jesus wins because on his head are many diadems. In the ancient world, diadems represented sovereign power and authority. And the only others who wear diadems in Revelation are the dragon and the beast from the sea. The dragon has uh, um, seven diadems and seven heads and the beast has ten on seven heads. Ramsey Michaels writes that many diadems on Jesus' head suggests that, uh, that he has many spheres of sovereignty, sovereignty are, are under control of a single Lord. That all the authority and power and, and control belongs to Jesus. The point is simply that Jesus' sovereignty and kingly authority is eternal, whilst the authority and power of the beast and the dragon are temporal and limited. We should take note also that Christians will also receive a crown as a reward for their faith, for in this way they are identified with their crown, saviour and king. But here we see that Jesus wins because he truly is the one who has supreme sovereign rule and authority for all eternity. But Jesus wins because he has a name written on him that no one understands except himself. 
Now, considering the number of names that have been ascribed to Jesus already just in Revelation, this unknown name is surprising and perhaps mysterious. Firstly, it reminds us that there is something about Jesus that is beyond human comprehension. However, it also may allude to a belief that was widespread in the ancient pagan world, that divine beings had a secret or unknown name. And if you could discover that name, then you could have some control or power over them. Magicians would often re uh, recite multiple names in their incantations in order and hope that one of the names that they said would help them gain control over the powers of the universe. But as Reddish puts it, Christ has a name that is unknowable because he is beyond human control and beyond full human understanding. But in the ancient world, it was also believed that a person's name revealed something of their character. So there might be something of what Beale says about this, that this name is actually a kind of symbolic in nature. The meaning of which is to affirm that Christ has not yet consummately fulfilled the promises of salvation and judgment, but he will reveal his character in his name, uh, his character of grace and justice, when he comes to carry out those promises in the vindication of his followers. Jesus wins because he wears a robe dipped in blood. We may well find this image difficult to accept and most commentators read it as an allusion to Isaiah 63 verses 1 to 3 which itself alludes to God judging the nations. I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. In that passage, the warrior seeks vengeance and redemption on behalf of his people uh, and the same goal is certainly in mind here with Christ as the warrior. However, in contrast to the Isaiah passage, the blood is on Christ's robes before he engages in battle, not after. And so, although the enemies of God will be destroyed as utterly as grapes in the winepress, as Isaiah suggests, this here in Revelation is unlikely to be a reference to the blood of Christ's enemies. It is much better to understand it as, as being a reference, uh, the blood on his robes being a reference to his own blood. Because the image takes us back to the cross and the shedding of his blood for us. In Revelation, Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the lamb who was slaughtered. And so the blood-stained robe reminds John's readers and us that the conquering Christ is also the suffering Christ, the Christ of the cross, that Jesus triumphed over death and the graves. Jesus defeated the devil, not by armed conflict, but by his self-sacrifice, by laying down his own life for us on the cross. As Reddish puts it, in the apocalypse, Christ conquers not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but by shedding his own blood for his enemies. For we were God's enemies when Christ died for us. It's also significant that his own army that follows behind him is dressed in fine, pure white linen, not in armour and or, or battle fatigues or whatever. Linen is, of course, the garment of priests. 
This army is the church. In other words, believers join in the victory of Jesus by being priests, as Johnson puts it, announcing and implementing the high priestly work of the king. It takes us back to Revelation 12 and 11, where it says of the church, they overcame him, that is the devil. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. We're told here as well that Jesus wins because he's the word of God. Every other time the title or phrase is used in Revelation, it's in relation to the testimony of Jesus, showing that the word of God is revealed most fully in the life and teaching of Jesus. Once again, we, we note that Jesus defeats the wicked, not by actual physical violence, but by simply speaking a word, by declaring God's judgment against them. And all of this explains the image of Jesus having a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. An image we also find in the beginning of Revelation. And with that sharp sword of his mouth, the word of his mouth, therefore, he strikes down the nations. As Hebrews 4 and 12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The fact that it's subscribed to Jesus shouldn't be a surprise, for in John's Gospel, it opens with that very description of Jesus in which we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus wins the war by speaking pronouncing the judgment of God. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He calmed the storm by saying, be still. His word was enough because he is the living word. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 2 tells us long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is not just the word of God, he is God's last word. And Jesus wins because on his robe at his thigh is written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. As with so much in Revelation, this is a direct critique and challenge to Rome and its Babylonness. Whenever Caesar entered the Roman Senate, they shouted, You are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was a claim based on their empire's um, military rule over other peoples, that they ruled with a, an iron fist over the nations. But it was a false claim. In human terms, Caesar might have ruled the world. But in reality, Caesar answered to a greater king and lord, as all men do. Because the scriptures are clear, there is a day coming when every knee will bow before Jesus, even Caesar's. And every tongue, even Caesar's, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. People will confess that joyfully or with great sorrow, but everyone will confess it. So, although most people think that Revelation is a mysterious, complex book that's difficult to understand, the truth is that it's really not. If you want to know what the message of Revelation means in a nutshell, it's really quite simple. It is that in the struggle with Rome or Babylon, 
or the dragon, whatever form evil may take in the world, Jesus is going to win in the end because he already has. He's going to win in the end because he's already won at the cross and he wins because of who he is and what he's done for you and I in the shedding of his own blood that we might be reconciled to God. And the scriptures are clear. There is nothing in all creation, past, present or future, that can separate us from him now because of his love for us in Christ Jesus. I pray that you'll know that love in a real way in the week ahead.